So I've been thinking a bit in recent weeks about waking up and pondering all of the different ways that we wake up. What does it take to open to some new level of insight? How is it that our lives and our hearts and our minds change? And of course we all know, you know, or most of us know anyway, the story of the Buddha and that the Buddha grew up in, you know, this very protected, wealthy, wealthy for the time, family. And, um, and then he had this sense of something missing. And, and so then he, you know, he, he, the, he went out, he finally got out, you know, one night the way teenagers do, although he was a little late because he was 29. And that's when he saw someone who was very old and someone who was very ill and someone who was dead and was astounded because he'd never seen those things before. And he really wondered, you know, what is this? And of course his question, that that wonderful question, I always laugh even when I think of it now, I've heard it so many times, you know, will this happen to me? You know, will this happen to me? And of course the answer is, yeah, you know, it happens to everyone. But we all ask that question, right? We're still asking that question. Will it happen to me? I was talking with another older friend just a few days ago. and um, In fact, it was in here on, at the Tuesday set. And someone said, um, I still don't really believe that I'm going to die. You know, um, it's interesting because there's that place where sometimes it's really hard to get it, you know. And out of that, that the impact of those heavenly messengers, plus the fourth messenger, who was the person of a monk. And so the Buddha began to see that, except he wasn't the Buddha then, that there might be another way to go. And so then he entered into doing all of these different practices that were very popular at those times. And, and he did those practices trying to get this understanding and this opening of the heart. And, Nothing quite did it for him, but he continued with the practices anyway. And then, um, if you remember that, he, he remembered the time when he watched his father doing the spring plowing and just sitting there and really paying attention and being so present and so focused and so concentrated. And out of that memory, he felt like he had a clue as to what he needed to do and he put himself down under the Bodhi tree and had the experience that he had, whatever, whatever complete and full enlightenment is. But what we do know is that his life changed, right? Something, something must have happened because 2,500 years later, here we are still talking about his teachings and um, as a teacher myself, um, I've often said, I, I truly do not believe for a second, not even a nanosecond, that in 2,500 years anybody's going to be talking about Mary Grace Orr. You know, it just seems really improbable. So, but that's an interesting thing to think about, that they're probably not going to be talking about Jack Kornfield even, or, or Joseph Goldstein, but the Buddha we're still talking about. So something enormous 
happened and that he was able to convey in his teachings. And so, so out of that awakening, the reverberation is very, very strong and it's continuing even today. So many of you are probably familiar, some of you are probably familiar with Karen Armstrong's book. She writes a lot about religion in the contemporary scene and I've been reading one of her books and um, it's actually a book, it's perhaps a little odd for a Buddhist to be reading it, it's called The Case for God, Um, but I recommend it. And in this book, one of the things she reiterates over and over again is how important it is to practice, to do practices that kind of require you to wake up a little bit. It can be any kind of practice. It can be yoga or a dietary practice or the practice of sitting. But there's something she maintains about the practice itself that begins to change things. She has a lovely passage towards the end of the book. Let's see if I can find it here. Um, she says, from almost the very beginning, men and women have repeatedly engaged in strenuous and committed religious activity. They evolved mythologies, rituals, and ethical disciplines that brought them intimations of holiness that seemed in some indescribable way to enhance and uh, fulfill their humanity. And then she goes on to talk about this and that that, um, really what people have wanted is to find what is it that makes us most deeply human? What is it that opens our hearts and brings the most wisdom and the most compassion? And so in this book, she's talking about many, many different traditions, very ancient ones, and the Greek philosophers, and and talking about how there were rituals and practices, and that even, it was quite interesting to me to think, even things like the Platonic dialogues were really intended to be experienced, and and that one enters into that kind of an, an activity, not to learn something, but more to have a particular experience. And, and it's her contention that this continued in Judaism and in the early forms of Christianity and in Islam. They all require the student to take on some pretty stringent practices and to go through some initiation. So it's not about accepting what someone else tells you is true. We talked about this last week here. You know, that, that it's her contention, again, that this is a more modern kind of invention that we seem to have cooked up in the last couple of centuries, that you have to believe what you're told. But more that you have to do these things, and the doing changes you. And so we all know this, you know, that, that how important it is to wake up in your own life and your own experience, and that probably all of you do a various forms of practice in order to do this. And often, just like the Buddha, the three messengers, those first three, are part of what wake us up, you know. Our own aging begins to weigh on us one way or another. 
Um, or maybe you even begin to notice that your parents are aging. I have a very clear memory of the first time I was with my parents. It was in their 70s and I realized my mother in particular was really diminished and that she was weaker and frailer and, and all of a sudden I thought, oh my goodness, she's really going to die. You know, and until then, it'd been this idea that I knew was true. I mean, everybody knows it's true, but I really knew it, you know. And it woke me up a little, a little bit more, maybe. Or maybe you get sick, you know, or someone else gets sick. And again, that, that, that kind of, oh, um, or, you know, you get a diagnosis that points you towards your own death or you're with someone who gets a diagnosis that's very difficult. Or sometimes it's not even the death of a person or a beloved animal. It's the end of a relationship or the end of a job, something else in your life that's dying and coming to an end. And all of these things jolt us out of our complacency. There's a way in which we, ah, again, you know. Um, and it's so easy to get complacent. It's so easy. It's like you, you wake up a little and then you doze off again, you know. You know how it is in the morning sometimes, so some of you may have that. And you wake up and you, oh, a little more sleep, just a little more sleep. Who wants to wake? Who wants to wake up? You know, sometimes it's really comfy being asleep, right? And so we don't. Or we get caught in the very hectic pace of our lives. And, and, and we're going so fast from one thing to another and we're doing several things at once and we get completely caught in our own world, in our own identity, in our work, in our family. And pretty soon it's like a little shell around us. That's all there is, is just I, me, mine, and maybe a few other people. But it's, it's a pretty small kind of view. So knowing that we need to wake up, you know, and we don't need to wake up just once. I wish, you know, that the story of the Buddha makes it sound a little like, okay, just work really hard, stay up all night under the tree, and then you're there. But, you know, for most of us, that it's, it's, an, it's an image and a wonderful symbol for waking up. But most of us are waking up, just as we do in everyday life, over and over and over again. Each night we go to sleep, wake up in the morning, you take a nap, you wake up, and you know, whatever it is that wakes you up, the alarm rings or the dog barks or something predictable happens in your neighborhood, the traffic sound gets to a certain level, and then you wake up. So really one of the questions is, well then, how do I, how do we set our alarm? How do you set your alarm for waking up spiritually? You know, you know how to do it in terms of your physical waking up. And that's exactly what practices are for. That's exactly, whether, no matter what you do, your meditation, your study, your journaling, your inquiry, your yoga practice, your dietary restrictions, they're all practices that interrupt that cycle uh, of being busy and of being closed off. And they stop us and they require us 
to pay attention. I had the very interesting experience um, this week of having dinner with some friends who keep a kosher kitchen. And it's been a long, long time since I've um, actually taken food, which I did this time, into the kosher kitchen. And I blew it. In case any of you would like to know, Gizditch pies have lard in them. So don't take your Gizditch pies to your kosher kitchens. So, you know, it was definitely a wake-up call for me to pay attention. But it also just reminded me of the kind of attention that's done in that situation as a spiritual practice, that you really have to look and think, you know, about. Now, most of us in this room are probably not keeping kosher kitchens, so that's not how you do it. But maybe you're a vegetarian, or maybe you have other practices, and that's what stops us. So tonight, you came here. Every one of you is here, I think, and you interrupted what you were doing, and you came over here, and you sat down, and you closed your eyes for 45 minutes, and you stopped. So that's really interesting. It seems simple. Some of you do it pretty much every week. Some of you are here fairly regularly. I know most of you have a regular practice where you stop. It seems simple. Your mind might not have stopped completely, you know, even though you might have liked it to. But when we stop like this and sit still and bring our attention as best we can to the present moment, then something has a chance to come in. Something has a chance to be heard that otherwise might not be heard. And so often I've had the experience, and I'm sure most of you have, of I see things a little different. I'm a little less angry. I chill, as my kids would like to tell me. Or I'm a little more, you know, my heart has a little more space in it, or I'm feeling ready to be a little more patient. Or sometimes I'm just a little more rested. Because after all, I've sat there and done nothing for 45 minutes, which is an amazing thing in our world and a real gift to ourselves. And then out of that place of being a little more rested, often act a little more skillfully. So this is, you know, the Buddha, as we talked about last week in here, it's not that you have to believe what the Buddha said. You know, these teachings are not teachings that that you are expected to sort of take in and then sign on, yes, I believe this, but more to um, work with in yourselves and to see how is it that things work, you know, and and to go, oh, look at that, I'm really attached, you know, sometimes we don't see that until we stop long enough. Or maybe you're writing about something, maybe it's your journaling practice, and you realize, huh, that's the tenth journal entry that's all about this one thing. I think I'm a little caught here, you know, maybe I need to look at that. And so that's how the insight begins to arise. So we see where we're attached, we see where we're suffering, sometimes 
we see, you know, when we, when we do practices, we begin to see where the reverberation of our own actions are and how it's causing suffering to others. Sometimes when we sit and are present with what is, we're just undone by how impermanent it all is. So, so impermanent. And if we don't let these things in, if we don't create those, it's like creating cracks in our lives, you know? Isn't there, there's a, a Leonard Cohen song about where the cracks are where the light comes through, right? You should all get that song and sing it. So that's exactly what we're talking about, is that these ways of practice create a crack. And in that crack, something can happen. And that's the, that's the heart of the spiritual experience. It's not about believing anything in particular. Because otherwise, we're going through life with blinders on, you know, and, and keeping things very narrow. And then, in the end, we're caught up short, because it does come to an end. It does come to an end. And I've watched people. I'm watching a couple of people right now who are... Um, struggling with that, that place where, you know, it is getting to be close to the end, and they haven't thought about it very much, and it's pretty scary. It's pretty scary when you don't have any kind of practice. So, finding those many ways, and it, it, it's really interesting, I think it's in one of Donald Rothberg's books, he has a long list of all the things he does for daily life practice. It's a fabulous list. It includes things like he takes a bath. You know, a bath might not be really high on your list of spiritual practices, but you know you could consider it. Or his daily walk, or certain ways of working with email, or you know, besides all of the ones that you would expect to be there of sitting and retreat practice and study and and all of that. It's a very long list. It's very well worth finding. Um, or maybe making up your own list of, you know, what are the places where you, it, it's as though you have to, it, it's like a speed bump. That's the image that came just in this moment. It's not in my notes. You know, so you're driving along and you have to go over this bump and it's, it's what slows you down. And so if you're, if you have to do, you know, a particular practice or you're watching your diet in a particular way or there's a, you know, a book that you're working your way through, reading by reading. It's, that's the bump that, that then creates the space for the insight and the awakening to arise. In the Committed Students group, where one of the books we're going to be reading this year is Stephen Batchelor's book called The Confessions of a Buddhist Atheist. I recommend it to you. And I read them this last paragraph in the book, the other night, and I wanted to share it with you as well. He says, I no longer think of Buddhist practice solely in terms of gaining proficiency in meditation and acquiring spiritual attainments. The challenge of Gotama's Eightfold Path is, as I understand it, to live in this world in a way that allows every aspect of one's existence to flourish, seeing, thinking, speaking, acting, working, etc. Each area of life calls for a specific way of practicing the Dharma. Meditation and mindfulness alone are not enough. 
given the task of responding to the suffering that confronts me each time I open a newspaper, I find it immoral to relegate the demands of this life to the higher task of preparing oneself for a post-mortem existence or non-existence. I think of myself as a secular Buddhist who is concerned entirely with the demands of this age, no matter how inadequate and insignificant my responses to these demands might be. And if in the end, there does turn out to be a heaven or nirvana somewhere else, I can see no better way to prepare for it. So practices are one form of an alarm, learning how to be here just in this life, Another way that you can practice, another practice that you can use as an alarm is um, one of reminding yourself of these heavenly messengers. And there is, there is this practice of the five recollections that is often used um, in which you quite intentionally invite these heavenly messengers in. So it goes like this, I am of the nature to age, I have not gone beyond aging. I should maybe say you are of the nature to age. We are of the nature to age. We are of the nature to sicken. We have not gone beyond sickness, any of us. No matter how healthy you are, you haven't gone beyond sickness. We are of the nature to die. We have not gone beyond dying. All that is ours, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise. I said that to myself today as I was walking along my road, looking at the trees and the sky and thinking, that means the world. It doesn't just mean my stuff. It means the world. Everything that I know, beloved and pleasing, will go somehow. All that we have is our karma, the reverberation of our actions. That's what we can trust to continue even after we go. If we act in a way that is wise and compassionate and kind, that will continue. So bringing those recollections in, you know, I know people who do it on a daily basis, is a way to create an alarm to wake up creates a crack where we go, oh, you know. And then the last alarm that you can use is to really, and it's really a continuation of all of these. It's that place where we use our everyday life as our practice. Our experience becomes our wake-up call. If you're having difficulty with a relative, that's your teacher. You know, that person is your teacher right now. If your boss is difficult, he or she is your teacher for right now. If there's some, you have some break in your ordinary existence, I think of my recent expedition to Burning Man, that was my teacher for that period of time, you know. Or travel in general is a wonderful way to create a crack. And Trungpa Rinpoche used to say, if you can't meditate, travel. Because travel is one of those places that just shakes you up, you know, it gets you out of your ordinary rut and you see things and hear things and do things that you wouldn't otherwise do. And you go, oh, look at that. I could be different. I don't have to be locked into that story 
You know, I don't have to have white hair the rest of my life. I can have purple hair, you know. And so try it and see what happens, you know. And so, so this can you can create these wake ups for yourself, you know. Decide, okay, it's time to get on a bus or a train or a car and go someplace else and do something different for a while. Always the question is, what's happening here? What can I learn? How can I wake up? What am I not seeing? And perhaps even more importantly, what do I not want to see? Because that's always the trick, isn't it? So, really this is all about saying that what is deeply, I'm going to use the word sacred, but I don't mean it in any kind of magical way, sacred in life, is not something that any one of us can easily formulate and hold on to and then tell someone else. I don't think it works that way. It's much more something that when we do these practices that create the cracks, that help us to develop wisdom and compassion, then we begin to find that which is sacred in our lives. It's the practices that wake us up and that bring the insights into the deepest truths of human existence. So here's Karen Armstrong's version of a piece of the Buddhist story. One day a Brahmin priest came across the Buddha sitting in contemplation under a tree and was astonished by his serenity stillness and self-discipline. The impression of immense strength channeled creatively into an extraordinary piece reminded him of a great elephant. Are you a god, sir? the priest asked. Are you an angel or a spirit? No, the Buddha replied. He explained that he had simply revealed a new potential in human nature. It was possible to live in this world of conflict and pain at peace and in harmony with one's fellow creatures. There was no point in merely believing it. You would discover its truth only if you practiced, systematically cutting off egoism at its root. You would then live at the peak of your capacity, activate parts of the psyche that normally lie dormant, and become a fully enlightened being. Remember me, the Buddha told the curious priest, as one who is awake. So I will point out that that is the last paragraph in a book that's called The Case for God. So you can see that she's going someplace rather different from what you might expect. And so I think that story also really points us toward what each one of us needs to do, is to find out how do, how do I stay awake? from moment to moment to moment, so that I can see deeply into this amazing experience that calls itself a human life. So let's stop there and see if there's questions or comments or toes that I might have stepped on or who knows what. So anyone, please. My. 
unpleasant experience last week. I took a trip <coughs> to Mount where I went on my honeymoon and returned many, many times. I went on love and so did my husband. So this is my first time going without him. And um, if you really know, my son picked me up. So we had a lovely three hours together on this drive to Mount and then he took me to the condo at the place where he works and brought me in and brought in my suitcases and he left. <coughs> and I was feeling really good and within five minutes I fell hard. And I've fallen too many times and this one was really bad. <laughs> so I'm lying on the ground thinking, oh, I'm just lying for a minutes and see if all the parts are still connected, and I hope I'm not going to have to calm completely. And so I got up and I had a bruised elbow and two bloody knees, and hurts here, and the shoulder problem that I had was much worse. I felt my neck snap, and I felt really sorry for myself. I wanted to cry and for someone come and pick me up. And um, it sort of put a dent in my first couple of days, but what happened ultimately was that it reminded me that I have to pay attention to what is around me and watch my feet. And mm -hmm. so I told my son about it the next day, and there were a couple of occasions where we were taking a walk or something, and he said, Mom, look at Vicky, don't walk with me up at the sky. So, <laughs> You know, it was a reminder that yes, I have fallen a number of times recently, and I am not getting old. I am old, and it's time to really pay attention to certain things that I've taken for granted for a long time. You know, I used to dance; it was so easy to get up from the floor, and it was kind of a struggle, especially with a bum shoulder. And um, I found myself today taking a walk, and several times, so beautiful on my road, looking up and realizing, oops, I don't know what's ahead of me. Keep looking ahead of you. If you want to look around, stop. It's okay to stop. You know, it's, it's a wonderful story because, in a sense, it has all of mindfulness practice in it. I'm reminded, I was sitting here thinking as you were telling it, remembering a therapist of mine who would, I would tell her an experience like that and she would say, well, if you dreamed it, why would you have dreamed it? And of course, you know, that's an interesting question for your story and I don't need you to answer that right now. But in a way, it's, it's, it's for everybody, you know, why would we have this dream right now of not paying attention to where we're walking and needing to pay attention so that we don't fall? That's exactly what the Buddha taught and over and over and over. And it's a lovely example of being able to take something pretty simple in your everyday life that, that you've done and go, oh, wait a minute, this is a teaching and I can learn from it. And, and that's, I think, how those things really become wake-up calls. It doesn't have to be, you know, some mammoth experience under the Bodhi tree. It can be something really, really, really simple that startles you, maybe bruises you. I'm glad you weren't any more badly bruised. And and still also wakes us up. So yeah, thank you.
please. I, I was thinking, um, I'm thinking about what you said in terms of the cracks, mm-hmm. uh, and, and it just reminds me of um, when I when I have insights, it is usually from a, like a place of stillness, uh-huh. or I don't get into um, like an automatic reaction, like something that I, that might be challenging for me. Like instead of reacting defensively, I'll, I'll just kind of just just kind of sit on it, and uh-huh. then something happens, uh-huh. like some some idea, solution, right. something insight happens and uh-huh. just um, you know it, it, it's funny that it does happen out of a place of uh, stillness. It can happen out of a place of stillness. It also can happen, it's very interesting though because there's a lot, a lot of stories of the stillness happens and then almost as the body, as we relax and the body begins to move, then the insight comes up. Mm-hmm. And so there's you know, there's poor old Ananda trying really hard to get fully enlightened before the first council, and he's just sitting and sitting and sitting, and he's just he's the only one because he was too busy memorizing what the Buddha said, right? He was the only one who wasn't a full arahant. And he finally gave up, went to go to bed, started to put his head down on the pillow, and poof, something happened. Maybe, yeah, like it's almost like a pause or something. Oh, no. Something. We don't get this. What I do know is we don't get to say. So, you know, you can't come to a teacher in the middle of a retreat and say, where's my insight? How come it hasn't showed up? You know, this is day seven, I've been a good kid. Ah, What is this? Now, chances are there actually already has been some insight, for one thing, and maybe it's not just the one you want. But it's also true that you don't get to order it up. It comes when it comes. One thing that I find challenging, though, is, is getting it. Sometimes the routine that I do is I enjoy it, you know? Uh-huh. Sometimes it's hard to, to deviate it from because I enjoy a lot of the things I do. And it's kind of a, a tricky balance to know, like, okay, I mean, this feel, it feels good, but, like, at, at what point is it maybe uh-huh. mitigating inside? Exactly, exactly. It's always an interesting question. I mean, you know, I talked about this some. A lot of you weren't here. I was persuaded to talk about Burning Man right after I got back, and I haven't talked about it much since. But I had a whole story about that was not me. I was going only because I have this husband who's been for 12 years, and it was time. I wasn't going to like it, this and that and the other thing. And it's true, there were lots of things that I didn't like. And there was something that began to shift that was different. I was completely out of my element. Completely out of my element. Except there were three people, I think, who came up to me and said, are you Mary Grace Orr? (laughs) 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 I think I sat a retreat with you. (laughs) They were a little surprised to see me there. But, um, so, you know, so I think sometimes that place where you are, for whatever reason, willing to get out of your rut is a very interesting place. So, a lot of stories that I had about myself, I think, are maybe not true. Interesting, huh? Or at least I don't have to live inside of them all the time. But rut has a connotation of like being stuck, like maybe it's um, not very uh, pleasurable or enlivening. Huh? But I'm talking about not necessarily being in a rut, but just being in a, in a kind of I don't know, routine that's enjoyable. Like this yeah, yeah, but I think the enjoyable ones are also a little questionable once in a while that you know it's helpful to put them aside and do something that's not so enjoyable just as an experiment 
See what happens. You can always go back to the enjoyable routine, right? Yeah. I think we need to stop. So, so let me just, I think there's just one announcement. Um, and that is that on Sunday, um, there's the usual set at 9.30. And then um, it will end at 10.15. I will be leading it and it'll be a bit of a reflection. And then we're going to have another clean the temple morning. And so that'll be about an hour's worth of cleaning. Last time we had 15 or 16 people. And boy, did we get a lot of work done in just about an hour and 15 minutes. So um, I'm hoping some of you will think to come over here Sunday morning and sit with us and help with the vacuuming, dusting, polishing, tidying, organizing kinds of things. Denny's been organizing a, a list for us. And um, we'll work hard and then we'll do a little reflecting at the end of the work period. And we're out of here by noon, so it won't eat up too much of your day. And I hope you'll come. I think that's all I have. Is there anything else? Bill, is there anything from the board that needs to be spoken to? Uh-huh. Well, you're the treasurer, so you're the one to give us that. And the place to do that is over there, right? The place to do that? <laughs> or online. So. Okay, we'll end with just a little bit of loving-kindness practice. So sit. If you're comfortable, stay where you are. No need for anything fancy for this. <coughs> Take a breath. Feel your body. <coughs> and in some simple way, extend goodwill, friendliness into your own being. It may be that something's going on with you, and it might be a wish for your health or your peacefulness, your safety. It might be simply a wish that you would practice and come to deeper liberation and freedom from suffering. Just really wanting, as the Buddha says in the suttas, he talks about how, how loving kindness is like holding ourselves as a mother would, wanting every good thing for ourselves, and then holding all other beings in the same way. So really extending that kind of kindness and goodwill to yourself. And then let yourself be aware of everyone seated around you and extend your goodwill outwards towards them, people to your right and to your left and in front of you and behind you. Wishing each person here ease of being and happiness. And then let your attention go on out even further, perhaps towards the people whom you know and love, 
extending your goodwill to them and their particular situations, your wish, wishes for their happiness and peace and health. And then on out to all people, to all the beings of this world, and on out into the cosmos to all forms of being. And last of all, we gather up all of the goodness, the merit of our practice together, and we offer this goodness to all of these beings, that all beings may be happy, that all beings may be peaceful, and that all beings everywhere may be free. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.